Good evening, everyone. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and part of our preaching team. And uh, you already know this, but one of the trickiest questions that you could ever ask someone is, how do I look? How do I look? You know that that's fraught, especially if you would appreciate an honest answer. I've been asking this question recently because, uh, believe it or not, my hair is actually really long for me. Uh, this is about as long as it gets. I've had like three weeks in a row where I've been meaning to get a haircut and have just not gotten around to it. And so I've actually, over the last few days, been kind of experimenting with some different hairstyles. And I'll come out of the bathroom and talk to my 12-year-old and 10-year-old and 4-year-old daughters and uh, I have a two-year-old son. He thinks I look like a stud all the time. He doesn't really care. But, but I'll ask the girls. I'll say, hey, what do you think of this? How do, how do I look? Not good. And I'll come back with another one. How does this look? How about this? No. Right? It's like you look too old. You look too young. You look too stupid. Right? You just, you just don't look good. And I just keep thinking, hey, just remember this. When you come and ask me how you look... I'm going to be as honest with you as you're being with me, all right? Does this work both ways? Because, you know, you do your hair a different way, and you go, I think, this, I think this looks pretty good. And then someone comes in with the truth and says, no, not, not so good. Uh, the, the idea that you look better than you are, th- this is something that sociologists call self-enhancement bias. Self-enhancement bias. This is this reality that oftentimes you think of yourself as better than you are. That's just true when it comes to uh, how good-looking you are, how generous you are, how kind of uh, you know patriotic you are, how what a good you know citizen you are. We always tend to give ourselves the benefit of the doubts on things. And one of the ways that sociologists studied this is they uh, they took pictures of people. They took like a headshot, and then with a computer, they used technology to make that person's face into one picture that was less attractive, and then into another picture that was just a little bit more attractive. And then they brought these people in, and they laid the three pictures out, and they said, point at the one that is actually you. And overwhelmingly, people picked the picture that was the enhanced version of them. (laughs) Now, when they were asked, hey, look at these pictures of strangers, which ones do you think is really them? They nailed it. They picked the right one. They picked the actual picture. But when they picked themselves, they looked just a little bit better. Self-enhancement bias. We try to make ourselves, we think of ourselves just a little bit better than we are. Uh, A a big place where this comes up is in driving. In driving. They've reported that 93% of drivers rate themselves as better than average drivers. Now, for those of you that didn't do great in math, that's impossible that 93% would be better than average. Uh, Now, I know what you're thinking, because when you hear that, you're thinking what I thought, which was, but I actually am better than (laughs) most people. And that there is self-enhancement bias. We do this in all sorts of ways. We uh, imagine that we would give more money to charity than we do. We imagine we vote more consistently than we would. We uh, give ourselves a benefit of the doubt. One article I was reading about this said this, if you think that self-enhancement bias exists in other people and does not apply to you, you're not alone. Most people state that they are more likely than others to provide accurate self-assessments. This is one of the things that makes Jesus so frustrating to the people who think they're better than they are, is that Jesus does not have any biases, biases, whatever the word is. He sees things the way they are. 
And so the people who think they're better than they are get very frustrated with Jesus because one thing Jesus does is he points out that they're not as great as they think. The other thing is when you think you're better than everyone else, you kind of look down on them and Jesus is more gracious and compassionate to those people than they think he should be. He's a very frustrating person because he is always filled, the scripture says in John 1.14, with truth and grace. He sees things as they are, and yet he's far more gracious, he's far more kind, he's far more compassionate than what we'd think of as someone who always sees it straight. This is frustrating for those people who think they got their act together, but it's actually really refreshing for the few who know they don't. That's what we're going to see in this passage tonight. This series we've been looking at, Love Walked Among Us, is simply this idea that the scripture says that God is love and that God in Christ lived among us. So love walked among us. When we look at Jesus, we see what God's like. God is like Jesus. And so what we're doing each week is we're looking at a passage from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, these first century accounts of Jesus' life, and we're looking at these places where Jesus is interacting with different people and seeing how he loves. And as we do so, we're more just drawn into the beauty of Jesus so we can adore him more, and we're more challenged and taught to love like he did. So here's what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at this passage at the beginning of John chapter 8. I just want to walk through it, try to enter the story together, try to make sure we just really feel the dynamics that are happening in this story, and then pull out some key lessons that the Lord would have us see from this. So sound good? All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for speaking to us through your word. God, we pray that you would use this word tonight that you would use this time that we have together to be part of how you hold us fast. Lord, we already sang about how we're prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. So God, take our hearts, seal them, keep us, hold us. We ask specifically that you'd hold us through seeing the beauty and majesty of Jesus. Open our hearts to him tonight, we pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, so if you have your Bible, grab John chapter 8, and what we read a moment ago was John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. If you have your Bible on your phone, or if you have a paper version there, uh, there might be something that I just want to spend a minute on that might raise some questions for you, which is that this whole paragraph begins and ends with a set of brackets. Do you see that? Before what is actually John 7.53, there's some brackets. At the end of chapter 8, verse 11, there's some brackets. And right above this paragraph, there's a little thing that the translators have inserted that says the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7.53 to 8.11. Now, I don't have time to get tonight into a whole lecture on textual criticism as much as I know you would all love me to do that. Uh, just kidding. I know most of you would not. If you have questions more about this after the service, I'd love to help answer them and try to talk to you about it. Let me just explain what's going on with that. Is we don't actually, this sometimes surprises people, this shouldn't scare you, but this is true, we don't actually have the original manuscripts of the Bible. We don't have that. What we have instead is tens of thousands of copies that are all so consistent that you can look at them and figure out what was in the original version. 
So all of these copies are called manuscripts. And the earliest ones, this note tells us, don't include this particular section. Now, many, many of the manuscripts do, but the very earliest ones don't. And that raises some questions, which, first of all, would be, did John write this? And the answer, as I read scholars about this, unquestionably is no, he didn't. The second question becomes, is this scripture? (laughs) Is this true? Did this happen? And the answer to that, as I studied it, unquestionably is, yes, it happened. Yes, it's true. Yes, it's worth studying. It's actually, the language of this is much more like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so this account is very similar to other accounts that Jesus has. Uh, There's details in it that indicate that this is an eyewitness type of account, some specific things that it mentions Jesus doing. And it's consistent with the rest of the scripture. And so for much of the church's history, they have said, we believe that this really happened. And so that's just a bit on that. I know that you're dying for more. You can talk to me later. But for now, look at the setting that we're introduced to in chapter 8, verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. So that's the scene of this. This is happening in the temple, this huge complex where the Jews would come to worship. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. That strikes us as odd, because we're used to preachers like me who stand up to teach, or teachers in classrooms who stand up to teach. In most of the first century, teachers would actually sit down to teach. It was this position of authority. Verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees, let's just stop there. The scribes were the people who were the legal scholars. They understood the Old Testament law. They had studied the first five books of the Bible in depth, memorized huge portions, knew it all very, very well. The scribes and the Pharisees, the Pharisees were a group of people that were part of this group that saw themselves as set apart. They saw themselves as different. They probably saw themselves as better than other people because they were really trying to obey God and obey the law. So that group of people, the scribes and the Pharisees, brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now, when you hear about uh, someone getting stoned, uh, some of you I know are thinking about your time in the 60s. That's not what this is about. Uh, This is talking about the idea that someone would be killed, executed for breaking God's law. They would heap huge stones, huge rocks on these people, violently hitting them until they finally put them to death. And this is the, the, the execution was the consequence of being caught in the act of adultery, Now, notice verse 6 says that they don't really care about this woman. They don't really care about justice being done. They don't really care about God's righteousness being upheld. What do they care about? Verse 6, they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus is constantly forgiving sin. Jesus is constantly healing people on the Sabbath. Jesus is constantly declaring that the kingdom of God has come in him. And Jesus is a friend of sinners, not a friend of the religious establishment. So the religious establishment doesn't know what to do with him. And they don't like him. And they don't trust him. And they look every opportunity they can to kill him. And here's the moment. Here's the test. Here's the chance that they finally have. Because here's the trap that they've put Jesus in. 
In the first century in Jerusalem, the Jews did not have legal authority to execute people. Only the Romans could do that. That's why if you read the rest of the gospel story, there's all this work that's happening to try to convince Pilate and Herod, these Roman uh, rulers, to kill Jesus. Because the Romans were the only ones that had the authority to do it. The Jews didn't have the authority. So get this. If they say, hey, Jesus, this woman's caught in adultery, should we kill her? If he says yes, now he's in trouble with Roman law. They didn't have the authority to do that. But if he says no... Well, now he's in trouble, they say, with the Mosaic law. They say, hey, what? You don't believe Moses? You don't believe the Old Testament law? You don't believe this is from God? Look, we knew you were a false prophet, right? They think they have him trapped. Notice, they don't care about this woman. She's just a pawn in their scheme. No question, she's guilty. She did this. She was caught. This isn't just a total frame It really happened, but it's not that these people are particularly mindful of her. And so Jesus does something really interesting, and it seems somewhat dismissive, actually. It says in verse 6 that they said this to test him. They might have some charge to bring against him. And so Jesus, you remember he'd been sitting. He now bends down, it says, and wrote with his finger on the ground. So he's now writing in the dust on the ground of the temple. And he's doing this for a long time, because look at what it says in verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, so he's, he's writing, he's writing. He's not saying anything, he's not answering their question, he's not telling them what he thinks, he's just writing. Now a lot of people wonder, what was he writing? Do you know? Of course you don't, it doesn't say. You don't know what he was writing. No one knows what he was writing. People speculate, people guess. Some people speculate that perhaps he was writing a portion from Jeremiah 17 that talked about how God would write the names of those who opposed him in the dust. Maybe that's what Jesus was doing, some say. Some say, well, maybe this was part of this trial of jealousy that when a woman was thought to maybe be having an affair, she would come before the priest and he would write down some things and put dust into the water and maybe this is what Jesus is reenacting. Maybe. Maybe Jesus is just so fed up with these people, he's drawing like cartoon figures of them and just counting to 10, you know? I can't stand these guys. One, two, three. I wonder because when Jesus is tempted, he often quotes the book of Deuteronomy. I wonder if perhaps, and this again, this is as much speculation as anything else, that I wonder if Jesus was writing out the rest of the laws of Moses that they conveniently had forgotten about during this setup. Maybe a verse like this, Deuteronomy 22, 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Who's missing in this whole story? Where's the other guy? He's not here. Right? If they were so concerned with righteousness, if they were so concerned with upholding the law, where's he? You can't help but wonder if maybe he was someone who was connected to them, who'd seduced her, maybe to set up a whole situation like this. Again, you don't know, but you just can't help but wonder, where's he? Maybe Jesus was thinking about the high bar 
that was expected for any kind of capital offense to have taken place. Maybe he was thinking of Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, which says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any connection or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he's committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Maybe Jesus was thinking about that because they don't have that. It doesn't seem like there's two people who have seen this. Probably what's happened is a jealous husband or maybe they were just engaged. A jealous fiance has, has kind of known what was going on and caught her in the act and brought her forward. We don't know. But there weren't two or three witnesses that saw it take place. It says in the rest of that passage, if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. If the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. In other words, this law is serious. If you don't have real charges, if you didn't really see something happen, if this is all kind of fabricated, you're just as guilty for handling it this way as the person who did it. Part of the tradition as well was that these witnesses, the people who had actually seen what had happened, would be the first ones to throw the stones. But they didn't see it happen. They weren't there. And they're using this woman, using the law of Moses. Jesus, we care so much about the law of Moses, don't you? And I just can't help but wonder if as Jesus is writing, he's giving them time to think about the law of Moses that they know pretty well. So Jesus stands up in verse 7. They continue to ask him, and now he stands Everyone would have stopped and listened. He stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, the way most people tend to interpret that is to say that Jesus is saying, let him who has never sinned in their life throw the stone. But I don't think based on the context and based on what's going on, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I don't think Jesus is saying, unless you've always been perfect, you can't ever say that something's wrong. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, hey, any of you guiltless in this scenario? Any of you without sin in this situation? Any of you the witnesses that actually saw this? Okay, throw the first stone. And Jesus just lets that hang there. It says in verse 8, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. He doesn't have much to say. He just lets the conviction of that truth linger. And in God's mercy, verse 9, they heard it, and they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. That's an interesting detail, isn't it? The older ones went first. Why? Again, we can only really speculate, but you have to hope that maybe the older ones had enough wisdom to go. What are we doing? This isn't right. This is a mess. Let's go. And one by one, they walk away until Jesus was left alone, verse 9, with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up 
now looking at her face to face, eye to eye. She's been this pawn. She's been this person used in the middle of a crowd. And now she has this face to face encounter with Jesus. And he asks her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Notice, Jesus does not say, hey, no big deal. I just want you to be happy. I don't condemn you. Do what you want. Hey, you know, everybody's got to do what they've got to do. No problem. He doesn't say that. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He's full of truth. He's full of grace. So what do we see from this passage? Well, at least three things. The first one is this. If you've been beaten up by life, go to Jesus. If you've been beaten up by life, go to Jesus. I don't know this woman's scenario. I don't know what led her into the arms of another man. We don't know, was she married? Was she engaged? But she's had some trouble in her life, and this situation has beaten her up. Your personal shame might keep you away from Jesus. Don't let it. If you've been beat up, go to him. The accusations of other people, which you might even know are true, might keep you away. Don't let it. Go to him. Your fear of being exposed, of being seen, of the truth coming out might keep you from Jesus. Don't let it. Go to him. If you've been bruised, if you've been beat up, if you've found yourself in a mess because of things done to you or because of even your own foolish choices or some cocktail of all of it, go to Jesus. I remember when I was in probably first or second grade at Lynn Knoll Elementary in Aurora, Colorado, and uh, I read a book that I really just started liking a lot. It was a book called Pecos Bill. And it was kind of a Western book, and there was this character named Pecos Bill, and I don't remember a thing about what Pecos Bill did, but, but I remember uh, I really liked this book, and I, and I found it really interesting because there was this fifth grade kid at my elementary whose name was Bill. And I didn't know a lot of people named Bill. That was kind of a unique name for a kid, it seemed like. And so I, during recess, thought, you know what? I'm going to call him Pecos Bill. So I would just kind of, anytime I'd see him, hey, Pecos Bill, how you doing? How's it going, Pecos Bill? How you doing, Pecos Bill? Right? And this was like, I mean, you're already annoyed, right? And, and you just heard it three times. Well, he'd heard it over and over and over and over. And he got to the point, it was like, do not ever call me Pecos Bill again. And I said, fine, Pecos Bill. <laughs> At which point, he beat me up. <laughs> and he got me good. What I really remember is he scratched me. He scratched my face. I don't know if he had sisters he was used to fighting with, but, but he scratched me up. I mean, he clawed me up bad. And so I had these scratches and bruises kind of all over my face. And so I got home from school, and um, my parents were not home, thankfully. And so I got home, and I don't remember it being particularly cold, but I found a big hooded sweatshirt, and I cinched it as tight as I could so that when my parents got home, they could not see my face, so I could just see out of the little hole, right? <sighs> Right, breathing out of the hole, seeing out of the hole. And I remember I'm sitting there on the couch, and my parents get home, and they're like, uh, hey, Luke, what, what are you doing? Nothing. 
Um, how was your day? Fine. Everything all right? Never been better. <laughs> Why are you wearing a sweatshirt with no opening in the front of it? No reason. Luke, what happened? And the truth came out. And I don't remember exactly what they said. I imagine it was something along the lines of, uh, yeah, you deserved that. <laughs> and you shouldn't call him Pecos Bill anymore, but let's get you some Band-Aids and let's clean you up and let's comfort you and love you and care for you. It's going to be okay. The one place I needed to go to find help, to find healing, to find restoration was the one place I didn't want to go. And so I hid, and I pretended, and I just imagined it'll all be okay, it's no big deal, everything's fine here, nothing to see, and that's how so many of us are when we're beat up by life. We try to put a bumper sticker on it, we try to put happy sayings around it, we try to just grit our teeth and bear it, and the invitation from this passage is come to Jesus. He is the one who can tell you, neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more. And that, in fact, leads us to our second lesson tonight, which is that Jesus is offering you grace and challenging you to obey. This is what's amazing about this story. See, most of us think that Jesus is either all grace, where just anything you do is fine because he'll forgive it, or Jesus is all rules, and you got to obey, and you got to work hard, and you got to do the right thing, or else... And in this passage, we see that Jesus is both. He offers grace. Do you see it in verse 11? She said, no one, Lord. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. She is not condemned because Jesus will be. Jesus says to her, listen, the stones will fly, but when they land, they'll land on me. The spear will pierce in execution, but when it pierces, it will pierce me. She is not condemned because he will be. He offers her grace. Neither do I condemn you. And we too who trust in Christ, who believe in Christ, who are forgiven by Christ, have the confidence of Romans 8 verse 1 that says there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's grace. That's the gospel. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You can't work your way to it. You can't clean yourself up to get it. It's grace. And in the very next breath, Jesus challenges her to obey. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. He doesn't condone it. He doesn't downplay it. Well, you know what? I get it. Girls will be girls. Stuff happens. He says, no, this is a pattern. This is a relationship you're going to. It's ruining you. It's ruining your relationship with God. It's ruining your relationship with this man you love. It's ruining this other person's lives. You didn't expect to be here, and now look where you are. Leave this life of sin. Stop this. Those of you who are parents or, or grandparents, you know this. When you tell your kids don't, what you're saying is don't hurt yourself. You're not just trying to suck the fun out of the party. You're saying, no, I've been there. I know what you're doing. It's not the path of life. Stop. Jesus, at the very same time, offers grace and challenges us to obey. We struggle with this, don't we? I mean, we just kind of go back and forth. Back. We're like a dog who has the truth tennis ball in its mouth and then tries to grab the grace tennis ball and the truth falls out. 
right? And so we get on this pendulum swing where it's truth, you know, it's all serious and we got to do the right thing and then it's grace. Oh, hey, whatever, Jesus loves me. And then it's truth and then it's grace and then it's truth and then it's grace. And some of us then go, oh, oh, you know what I need to do? I need to find the balance between truth and grace. Jesus did not balance truth and grace. It says in John 1, Jesus was full of truth and grace. Always truth, always grace at the same time. Titus 2 tells us that the grace of God has appeared. Jesus has come as a person. The grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness in this present age. Jesus offering grace and challenging us to obey. We struggle with this. In the church, we struggle with this in the world. Right? People assume, if you don't fully embrace everything I want to do, then you're totally against me. That's crazy. You can really, truly love and forgive someone and really, truly expect them to do better. That's exactly what Jesus does. I remember a number of years ago being in a, in a small group with a number of couples, and uh, we were studying the radical nature of the grace of the gospel. We spent about the first two months actually going through this where we were reading articles and reading scripture about this idea that we were forgiven and saved and brought into relationship with God, not because of anything we had done, but purely by the grace of God. We reveled in the idea that God would not love us less if we disobeyed and he would not love us more if we obeyed. And that felt to this group of people like shackles falling off. If you've ever lived in a, in a culture, in a church, in a religion, in a dynamic where you had to perform or else, that's exhausting, isn't it? And so these folks were experiencing the grace and the beauty of the gospel. And then we got to an article that I knew would throw a wrench in the process. It's an article by a theologian actually from Phoenix Seminary named Wayne Grudem. And the article is simply called Pleasing God by Our Obedience. And it goes through hundreds and hundreds of verses, Old and New Testament, especially New Testament, that describes how God likes it when we obey. How's that for a revelation? God likes it when we obey. Now, we would hear that and go, well, duh, of course. God, God likes it more when we obey, and it, it makes him sad when we disobey, of course. But here's the thing. If you had been in that group, and you'd been going through this dynamic gospel reality that no matter what you do, you're loved and accepted by God, when you now hear, well, I need to obey in order to please God, it starts to feel like someone's shackling you back up again. So everyone was talking in the group, and I could tell they were just wrestling with this. And this is, this is a common wrestle, a common difficulty. And so they were talking, and there was one person in the group that didn't seem to share the angst over this. That seemed kind of totally comfortable that grace and truth went together. That you could be totally forgiven by God, and God would have a high expectation of you. And that one person was my wife, Molly. And I just noticed as we were having the conversation, she wasn't really saying much. And I said, hey, babe, why don't you, I'm, I'm curious. Cause, and I put her on the spot. I didn't know the answer to it at the moment. I said, hey, it seems to me like you're not struggling with this the same way. Is that true? She said, no, I, I get why you guys are all struggling this way. But I just, to me, it makes sense they go together. And I said, well, why? Why do you think that is? Because we're all struggling with this and you're not. <laughs> so lead us up the mountain. How did you... How did that happen? And here's what she said. She said, I grew up with a really godly dad 
who I always knew, never questioned for a minute, that he loved me and was for me no matter what. And at the same time, he had high expectations for us. Those didn't seem in conflict. Those didn't seem contradictory. I never had to work for his love. And yet he was sad when I disregarded him and didn't obey. So I guess I just kind of was able to take that and say, I think that might be how God is. As we talked around the group, everyone else in the group that was struggling with that didn't have that situation. Almost all of them had had a father who their love was conditional based on how they performed or how they did or how they achieved or whether they could live up. Some of you know that all too well, don't you? And so it's really hard to get this because it feels like it's got to be one or it's got to be other. No, it's both. Jesus is full of grace and he challenges us to obey all at the same time. But here's the third lesson, and this is crucial. You'll only enjoy freedom if you get the order right. Notice the order of verse 11. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is what's unique about biblical Christianity. Every other approach says, go and sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. But Jesus says, I don't condemn you. I'm going to experience condemnation in your place. Now go and sin no more. That difference is huge. That is everything. That is what makes this the gospel. Any other attempt is just performance and effort and striving and trying to work your way to God when you can't. Because God came to you in the person of Jesus. John Bunyan attributed with this quote, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. The gospel standard is higher, flying is much harder than running, but Jesus has made it possible. Jesus has given us wings, Jesus has forgiven our sin, Jesus has enabled us to live a life of obedience and faith. It's hard to live that way, and it's contrary to how we think. We think, I gotta get some rules, I gotta get some restraints, I gotta hold myself back. The only way I'm gonna really change is if I just get committed to some rules. That's not what this says. The grace of the gospel says that you will experience freedom only if you get this order right. Some of you know the old Greek story where the sailors would sail through and the sirens would sing the beautiful song from the shore. And as the sailors would hear this beautiful song, they would inevitably be drawn to the sirens and they would uh, veer off into the rocks and their boats would be destroyed and everyone would drown. Well, two sailors had two very different approaches to this. One was Odysseus. He had the approach of the law. He said, I know I'm going to go buy this. And you know what I'm going to do? I want you to tie me up to the mast so that I can't steer the boat into the rocks. That's the way of law. The way of rules, the way of if I do this, if I can restrain this, then I'll be okay. The other was Orpheus. Orpheus had a very different approach. 
rather than tying himself up with rules so that he couldn't go off to there, what he said is he said, I actually want to get some other musicians and I want them to play a much more beautiful song that will drown out the sirens. That's the way of the gospel, is that Jesus plays a better song. We don't find freedom. We don't find the ability to go and sin no more in our own strength, in our own effort, by our own willpower, but rather the beauty of Jesus plays better music, sweeter music, and that is more compelling because Jesus is the song of truth and grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for how he shatters all of the expectations that these scribes and these Pharisees would have and so many of the expectations we would have. God, we pray that we would follow him by trusting that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ and at the same time striving, not in our power, but in the power you give us by your spirit, striving to Live a life of obedience, a life of love, a life of kindness, a life of generosity and sacrifice. God, when that happens, because it's not in our strength, it's in yours, you get the credit, you get the glory. So we pray that you would change us, that we would be displays of your transforming grace and truth. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.